Well, it's often been said that in life, there are two types of people. There are people who expect great things, and then there's people who tend to expect the worst. You know, you've probably heard it said that you might be a glass half full kind of person, or maybe a glass half empty. And if you have a coffee cup on your desk at work that says, I'm a glass half empty, be careful what you say, I think we know which kind of person you are. I mean, the reality is that expectations impact the way we see the world. Jeremy Brown was a baseball player drafted in the first round by the Oakland A's in 2002. And Jeremy went to the University of Alabama. And Jeremy had expectations of being a pro ball player, of living out his dream, of being somebody that his family would be proud of because he played in the major leagues. But Jeremy had a, a, a challenge. Is that Jeremy was afraid to run past first base. He had this terrible fear of being thrown out at second because he wasn't the fastest guy. He played catcher, wasn't the most in-shape guy, and he just knew. He had this fear of failure. Well, well one day he was playing for the Vesalia Oaks in the California League, and he gets up to bat. This is 2003, and he just hits a really nice line drive in the center field. And here is the moment where he says, I'm going to push through my expectation, and I'm going for two. And so he just begins to take off towards first. He rounds the bag, and he trips. Trips over the bag, falls face first, about eight feet past first base, just stumbles, realizes he doesn't think he has time to get back, so he crawls army style, right, hands and knees, back to first base. He's quoted as saying that all of his nightmares came together at once in this moment. He expected to get thrown out at second, but here he never even got the chance because he fell down rounding first. I think a lot of us at different times in our life might find ourselves where Jeremy was. Maybe we're not on the ground outside of first base, but we've got this fear, this fear of failure or this, this fear of expectations not working out. And so we're afraid to press through and I want you guys to think back. If, if that's you, I want you to think back. Because we didn't start that way. Did we? I mean, don't we all start off with dreams? The sky's the limit. Big expectations. We want to change the world. But then something happens. We begin to see that maybe we've had some negative experiences. And maybe we don't have what it takes. Or we have some bad situations. And maybe we aren't as good as we thought we were. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves in a place where we're pretty much glass half empty kind of people. Or maybe for you, you're somebody who looks at the world and you just assume that everything's going to be a situation that's its worst case scenario. There's a phrase for this in psychology, it's called catastrophizing. Somebody say catastrophizing. Don't do it. Don't catastrophize. Catastrophizing is the idea that you just expect the worst to happen and that the situation you're in, you typically think of as worse than it really is. And I don't know about you or, or, or where you've been in, in your life, but I think that we can look at situations and go, you know, my last work situation didn't go well. Why would this one go better? Or, you know, that last relationship I was in, it, it just did not end well, so this one's probably going to be the same. And that's true with our faith. I think sometimes when it comes to our faith, we do the same thing. We say, I've got this sin that I just, I can't get over. I guess it's going to be here forever. Or we say, you know, I... I just am not good at making deep, meaningful relationships. So why should this church be any different? Or you think, 
to yourself, can, can God really use me and my mess and my brokenness? And what happens is we begin to expect less and less and less and expect the worse. But I wonder, and, and here's what I want to lean into today. I wonder, what would happen if we stop basing our expectations on our past performance, on our past hurts, on our limited ability, and we started basing our expectations on what God could actually do in our lives? Would that change anything? I think it absolutely would, 100%. Today we're going to look at a miracle, one of Jesus' most famous miracles in John chapter 6. And we're going to see that what Jesus wants to do through this miracle is shatter your pint-sized expectations and begin to teach us that rather than thinking about what we can do or how good we are, but rather just learn to bring what we have to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, grab those. John chapter 6. We're going to look at probably maybe just a second most famous miracle. We looked at the water and the wine a couple weeks ago. That was probably his most famous, but this one might, is right up there. This is when Jesus feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And one of the things I love about this miracle in the book of John is this is the only miracle in John that all four gospel writers tell us about. You know, Jesus did 37, 40-ish miracles total, and we see them sprinkled throughout the different books of the Bible. John just tells us about seven of them. Matthew, Luke, Mark tell us about a bunch of different ones. But this is the only one that's in all four. And what I love about this is when you, when you read the, the account of this in all four of the books, what you see is that they complement each other. If you've been going to church for, for very long, you've probably read articles or heard people talk about how the Bible contradicts, contradicts itself. And people who want to attack the Bible will say, well, well, no, look what Mark says, and then look what John says. They're different. And I think what the Bible shows us, if you read them, we say, actually, they're not. Actually, John's just giving us this detail, and Mark's giving us this. We like to say they complement each other. Somebody say compliment. They complement each other. This is what's so beautiful about the Bible. And I think this comes to life in such a beautiful way in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And as we read from John, I'm going to kind of give you some nuggets that you can go back. And I encourage you guys, go back, read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you're going to see how it all comes together in this beautiful way. So here's what we see. So as we go back and look, we see that, uh, that Jesus had become really popular at this point in time. So Jesus had been out. He's, he's done a couple miracles at this point. Jesus has also been um, teaching, preaching, and healing people. And so everybody's coming out, and they're going, we need to hear this Jesus guy. We need to hear, is this really the one that, that, we were, that we're saying was going to come? And is this really the Messiah, or is this just another prophet, or is this just some con artist? We want, we want to come see him. And so big crowds start to follow. Right before this miracle, we see that Jesus sends out his disciples he actually sends out 72 people, and he sends them out to go from town to town and to talk about the kingdom of God. So they just get back, and they're tired. Like, imagine walking from here to, like, Copper Mountain, right, and back. Like, it's a long way. And so they get back, and it probably wasn't that far, but it was still a long way. And so now, you know, they're tired. They need a Red Bull. They need to get some rest. And they get back, and Jesus tells them, hey, guys, let's go get away. Let's go take a retreat. And so these guys, oh, man, this is good. Like, we're going to go up to Bailey and, like, put up the fire and have some s'mores and read our devotionals, right? This is going to be journal a little bit. It's going to be nice. So they get in a boat. And as they get in this boat, Matthew tells us that they see this huge crowds coming. So they're in the boat, and they're rowing, and Jesus is just kind of chilling, and he's talking about how good this retreat's going to be, and they see this huge crowd of people. 5,000 men, they think it 
probably with women and children, is like 20,000 people. It's like the size of an abs game, right? And so you see all these guys coming in their Nathan McKinnon sweaters, and they're just walking over, and Jesus is, he sees them, and Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion. Like Jesus saw that crowd, and he goes, man, I know that we need to go get away, but these people need us. And so Jesus tells them to turn the boat around. They go back to, um, they go back to shore, but there's something, another detail in this story that we need to remember. Jesus had just found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, had just died. John the Baptist got beheaded because of some stupid deal that King Herod made with his, his brother's wife's daughter. It's really messy. By the way, the Bible does not sugarcoat anything. It's real. It's one of the reasons I think we can believe it. It's trustworthy. And so, so Jesus' cousin just died. He's, he's sad about this. He's grieving. They're all exhausted. They need to retreat. And now there's 20,000 people who walk up and who are saying, Jesus, teach us, heal us, help us. And so Jesus says, let's turn the boat around and let's go help them. So here, here's where we end up. John chapter 6, verse 1. That's kind of a little bit of the, the back story for you there. So flip with me. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And so Jesus is he, he's doing miracles. He's healing. He's, he's uh, teaching about the kingdom of God. He's saying that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. But then as it grows, it blooms into the biggest of all trees where birds can come nest on its branches. And he's teaching about the guy that found a, a treasure in a field and sold everything he had and went and bought that field. And everybody's eating it up because it's Jesus. And people are going, I wonder, is this the one? Is this the guy? And it starts getting late. And Jesus, I think, is wanting to teach us something here. It would have been really easy for Jesus to, to look at that crowd and go, hey, guys, I know you want to talk, but come back Monday. We're tired. Like, we need the weekend. It would be really easy for the disciples to go, Jesus, I don't know that we have the, the ability to minister to these people. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus instead jumps out of the boat and goes up on the mountain and begins teaching. And so I think there's a takeaway for us, and, and, and there's a few of them. But the first one is this, that Jesus, he, he calls us to be spiritually farsighted. He wants us to be farsighted, not nearsighted. How many of you guys wear glasses? I mean, I can see many of you that wear glasses. How many of you like me and should wear glasses but don't wear glasses? Or every time you get a new pair of glasses, the dog eats them, right? And then you go and buy readers from Walgreens for $25 when, and you can't even walk in them because you're going to trip over something. So I went to the eye doctor a couple years ago because I got to a point where I was, you send me a text and I'd have to go. You know anybody else like that, right? You're like, man, who is that? Oh, it's my wife, you know, like that kind of thing. And so I go and I don't know farsighted near, I have no idea what this means. And they're like, well, you're nearsighted. I'm like, but doesn't that mean that I can see a long way away? And they're like, no, it means you can see what's near. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I don't understand why I always misunderstood that. So if you got history lesson here, if you guys don't wear glasses, nearsighted means you can see here. Farsighted means you can see out there, right? And, or and vice versa. So I'm farsighted. See, I'm so confused. I'm, so, I'm still so confused by this. All right, so I can see Gene's pocket protector right now. I can tell you what it says. It says God loves you, but I can't see my phone, right? When I pretend to read the Bible, I'm really reading my iPad, right? Like I can't see anything close to me. And so they're like, you need glasses. 
I think one of the things Jesus wants us to see is how often do we need glasses when it comes to loving on other people? We're pretty good at loving on the people right around us. We're pretty good at loving on our best friends. We're not even that bad at loving on our coworkers, but we're pretty bad at loving on the crowd and the people that are far from us. It would be really easy for Jesus to say, hey guys, my disciples are all tired. My cousin just was beheaded. We need some time. But Jesus says, let's go minister to these people because their need is greater than mine. I can rest tomorrow. I need to love on these people today because they might not have tomorrow. Jesus wants us to be spiritually farsighted. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times when we need a break, when we realize we're at the level of exhaustion, that we're about to burn out, we need a break. But I think what it means is we need to be attentive of our spiritual health and not get to the place where we've got a crowd coming to us who need help, and we go, oh, I just realized I need to retreat. Like, we need to be ahead of the game. Does that make sense? So Jesus is seeing this crowd, and he says, guys, we need to go, and we need to love on these people. And the reason I think this stands out to us is what did Jesus do for us? I mean, think about how Jesus cares for our needs, right? I mean, Jesus, this is, the king of the, this is the king of the world. This is the one that spoke everything into existence. This is the one who could have said, hey, you guys deal with this crowd. I'm going to go rest and grieve over my cousin. But instead, Jesus leans in. And I think if you look at your life, Jesus leans into us too. How many times does Jesus step into our situation because we need his help now? Jesus doesn't tell us to come back during office hours. Jesus says, I'm here now. And I think Jesus wants us to learn to do the same for other people. Notice what Jesus does. So here he is, he's on this mountain, he's ministering to 20,000 people, he's teaching his disciples that we're gonna get a break, but we need to be spiritually farsighted, we need to love on these people right now, even though we don't know them. And then he, look at this, verse five. I'm gonna try to read from the Bible this time. Verse five, it says this, lifting up his eyes, see I have to hold it down though. Lifting up his eyes, then, And seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Don't you love that Jesus always does that? He's always kind of checking you real quick, real quick, right? He's like, hey, what should we do? And he already knows. So he does this to the test. And Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little. So he asked Philip, hey, Philip, man, if we were going to go to Costco, like, how much bread do we need? Philip's like, man, like, a year's worth of wages wouldn't even give us enough bread for, for these people. And plus, Judas is over here clinging to the money purse like Clark Gris- Griswold to the gutter. Like, we don't have any money, Jesus. How are we going to take care of these people? But it was a test. See, Jesus knew what he wanted to do already. And I, I just say this. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Like, they're tired. They're frustrated. They've been serving people all day. They don't want to serve him dinner. They're like, send them home. You know, Matthew tells us that the disciples are like, we're going to send them home. It's getting dark. Like, they need to go eat. And Jesus, he tells us in in, uh, Matthew, like, no, you give them something to eat. And that's when Philip's like, how? Like, Costco closed like an hour ago. And I forgot my Sam's card. Like, I can't even get in that place. And notice what's going on here. Jesus is testing their heart to see who they, they trust. I, I don't know about you, but I, I see myself in this story. I don't know, but I, I feel like so often in my life, and you might be the same, I, I feel like when Jesus asks us to do something and we, we realize that it's not easy, what we typically do is we immediately 
start to count the cost, don't we? Like Jesus seems to be stirring us up to go and, and talk to my neighbor or to talk to the coworker across the street or to go invite somebody to church. And all of a sudden I go, well, I don't, I don't think I know enough. Or what if they ask a question I'm not familiar with? Or, you know, we're not good enough friends yet for me to ask that question. Like, you guys ever been there? Like, it doesn't matter what it is. It's so easy for us to say, well, I just don't know. I just don't know. The cost seems to be really high, Jesus. I don't think I have what it takes to do this. I don't think we have enough money to pry all this bread. And I think what Jesus wants us to see, we got to stop talking about how we are going to, to do something. And we need to insert Jesus into the equation. Back in 2018, Courtney and I, back in Kansas City, took our first trip to Guatemala to meet Oscar and the, the crew at Building Guate. And we had a plan. We were going to do this women's event. And Courtney spoke, and it was really a beautiful day. And um, we had made up about 80 gift bags for these women. And the gift bags included, like, some essential oil kind of things and bug spray and all this homemade stuff and lavender. It was going to be really a sweet gift to these people who don't have much, right? These people had just been rescued out of a trash dump and were now living in a, in a new home for the first time. And we wanted to give them something nice. And so we're, we're doing this women's event and... Um, you know, I get up at the end and I start praying and I notice there's this huge line. And we're looking at this box of 80 and we're like, I'm, I feel like there's 300 people in this line. Like, how are we going to give these people each a gift? I really hate to stop halfway and go, sorry, we're out. And so people start coming and we realize that we're going to run out. And so we start looking at each other and I, we're like, how do we get more? Like, does anybody have an extra bottle, right? Does, Who's got some Calvin Klein cologne in their bag? Like we can start spraying in a little spritzer, you know? You guys been there, right? You start to count the cost. You start to, to wonder, how am I going to get more, Jesus, to accomplish this task you've called me to? And I wonder, what if we stopped thinking about how much it's going to cost us and started asking how God's going to use this situation to make a way? Like what if we just decided ahead of time? I'm not going to count the cost. I'm not going to get anxious. I'm not going to get overwhelmed because God's asking me to do something bigger than I'm comfortable doing. Instead, I'm going to trust that God's going to make a way. I want you to notice something. You don't have to flip there in your Bible, but I want to show you. Mark 6. Check this out. In Mark chapter 6, verse 38, in Mark's account of this, um, this miracle, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this. He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. What, what was Jesus' question? How many, what, loaves? How many Hawaiian rolls do we have, right? Now, go back to John 6, 8. Notice this. It says this. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, good name, by the way, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? I'm sure the disciples are, are sitting here thinking, like, that's not going to feed anybody. And how about this boy, right? He's like the only one out of 20,000 people who brings a sack lunch, right? He had to have been an Eagle Scout. He's like, seriously, I'm the only one that brings food to this thing? That would be my daughter, Emma, right? Like, Emma would pack her lunch in that, in that case. So, but, but they're like, how are we going to feed anybody? But I want you to see, it's not about the money. It's not about the food. They, Jesus wasn't even in the equation. He asked, how many loaves do they have? And what did they find out? We had how many loaves? Five. But we also have two fish. Like they realized they had more than they thought they had, even though they didn't realize how much they had yet. So if you're taking notes, here's a, here's a thought I think is powerful for us. When you take inventory of what God has given you, 
you realize that you have things you didn't realize you have. Like they, they thought they only had bread, but they had bread and fish. And they're going to put them in Jesus' hands, and Jesus was going to do something special. I think some of us, we look at our spiritual situation, we look at our current situation, we think, I really don't have anything to give. Like, you feel like God might be calling you to, to step into a situation, and all of a sudden you're like, I just don't have anything to give. I, I don't have any resources. I don't have any skills to give you. And then Jesus, through this miracle, is saying to us, yes, you do. You've been given so much, but you need to take inventory of it. So that conversation with the friend that Jesus is kind of putting on your heart to have about the gospel, Jesus is saying, invite him over for dinner. You have dinner, don't you? You can make some fish sticks and Hawaiian rolls like this boy, right? Like, like I, I think we realize that well, we may not have enough, but what I have is enough when it's in Jesus' hands. And this is what Jesus wants to teach us. It's a miracle. So notice what Jesus does. Jesus says, actually, five pieces of bread and two fish sticks, you have all I need to work with. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men, women, children, dogs, whatever was with them, all about 5,000 in number, add in everybody else, it's about 20,000 in number, and they're all sitting down in groups, and, and we see in uh, one of the other Gospels, I think it's Luke, that says that they all sat down in groups of 50. So now in your groups of 50, so 20, somebody do the math, 20,000 divided by 50, what's that? 400 groups of people? So there's 400 groups of 50 sitting around, and Jesus says, sit them down, and we see that, that he blesses the, the bread, and he blesses the, the fish, and then he just starts to distribute it amongst these groups. Now, he could have fed this crowd with a lot of different things, right? He could have fed them manna, right, Pete? He could have fed them frosted flakes from heaven. He could have fed them quail. Joe Richardson could have rolled up in his barbecue truck, right? Like that probably would have been even the best option. But Joe was booked that day. So he could have done everything to feed this crowd. But notice what he does. He sends them out into groups of 50, and then he blesses this little basket. Hawaiian rolls in it, and 20,000 people are sitting out here. And again, an avalanche crowd that needs food, hangry hockey fans, it's a bad crowd, right? But notice how he does it. And he sits them down, and then look at this, verse 11. Then, then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Put yourself in that scene. We, we don't really know what it looks like, but Imagine, like, as the disciples are taking these baskets to these 400 different groups of people. Imagine what Jesus is doing. He's probably kind of starting to smirk, right? And every time they come back and it's full again, he starts to show some teeth, right? Like, he's, he's starting to realize that their faith is growing. They're realizing, wow, this isn't about me. This is about Jesus. Somehow Jesus is making enough bread and fish for 20,000 people, and their faith their faith grows, and their faith grows, and their faith grows. And I think the same thing happens to you and I. When we get out of our own heads, and we stop thinking that we have to have all the resources and answers, and we start to just obey and to go and to do, and we see God move, and we go, the only answer to that is Jesus, because I didn't have enough. But yet we had enough every time. Your faith begins to grow and grow and grow. And it's beautiful. And if you haven't been in that situation my encouragement is to you is take inventory of what you have because Jesus has given you something to give to him and to use that. And your faith will just grow 
and become something beautiful because you realize that it's not God or that it's not you that's doing it. It's Jesus. So here we are in Guatemala. There's a huge crowd. There's a huge line. Our, ba- our box of bags keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We're praying, Jesus, I pray we have enough. I'm looking at Oscar. I'm like, Oscar, what are we going to do, man? And Oscar's like, you know, if you know Oscar, he's like, oh, my brother, don't you worry. We will have enough. We always have enough. And I'm like, Oscar, are you sure? I'm sure. So, hey, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Dios la bendiga. Dios la bendiga. And then all of a sudden, they get, we get to the end. There's one, box, there's one kit left. And we look. And the line's empty. We got one left. And this little sweet old lady just comes walking down the aisle. Very last one. And one of the, the ladies gives her this bag. And we're like, Dios la bendiga. And we're all like, Poof. It was enough. How is it enough? How did we give 300 bags when we all had? I don't know. I have no idea how we had enough. Still to this day, I don't know how we had enough. But we did. And our faith was like, you know, we're like walking on stilts. We're walking so tall. Not because of us, but because we saw God do a miracle that day. Can you imagine these disciples, like what they're seeing here? So here's the point. When you take something small and seemingly insignificant and you put it in the hands of Jesus, he takes what is seemingly insignificant and makes it significant in a manner of seconds. The reality is, guys, you will never have enough when it's in your hands. You will never have enough when you hold on to it. That's why when we live close-handed and close-fisted and try to wrap everything around our arms and control our situations, it's never enough. That's why you always want more. That's why the, the most joyful, hope-filled, godly people you know are people who just live like this because they realize that you can hold it on. When it's in your hands, it's never enough. It's only enough when you put it in Jesus' hands. So how do we do that? We've got two thoughts as we look at this text here. And I think is the first one. Is, what does this look like for us to live like this, to take what we think is insignificant and to put it in Jesus' hands? And the first way, I think, is this. We have to bring what we have to Jesus. Sounds simple. It is. But it's difficult. We have to bring what we have to, to Jesus. You, you may say, well, I, I don't have any resources right now. I don't have many resources right now. I, don't, I, don't, I wish I had bigger gifts, but Jesus doesn't care how big the gift is. Jesus cares that you're giving it. What Jesus cares about is that you trust him enough with your life and with everything you have to put it in his hands. And when you put it in his hands, like this little boy with five Hawaiian rolls and two fish sticks, and you take it like the disciples and say, okay, Jesus, it doesn't seem like enough, but here you go. You're going to see that Jesus is going to make it enough. Who makes it enough forefront? Jesus. Who makes it enough? Jesus. I just love that. Who was that? <laughs> Jesus is going to multiply it and turn it into something beautiful. Notice verse 12. Notice this. It says, And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Don't you love that? Jesus cares so much that everything is found. He doesn't even want bread to get lost. Think about what he thinks about your soul your hope, your faith, your love, your life. So they gathered them up, verse 13, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. 12 baskets of bread. 
And who knows how many Long John Silver crispy fish platters were left over out of this deal. So what would it look like if you and I did this? If we said, Jesus, here's what I have, and use it. See, Jesus might say, well, use whatever skills you have. And you say, well, I, Jesus, I don't know that I have any skills. And Jesus says that if you've said yes to me, you have skills. You have been bestowed upon you, has been given skills and spiritual gifts and all these things. And Jesus says, so just give me your time and we'll figure out how to use your skills. So, so when Jesus says, give me your skills, what, what if we stopped holding so close to our time? Now, I'm not telling you guys to get involved with something every day of the week. But I'm saying sometimes we can make our time an idol. And we can say, well, no, can't have my time. That's my time. That's, that's some me time. And it might need to be me time for you. But Jesus also said, don't be spiritually nearsighted. How can you give your time to people that you don't know? Or people that aren't your best friends or aren't living in your house? Jesus might say, give your heart over by giving your resources over. And we say, well, Jesus, I don't have any room in my budget to give you my resources. And Jesus says, Give me what you can. And as you do, I'm going to begin to show you that you actually have so much to give, but not for my sake, but for your sake. And so Jesus is saying, give me what you have. Five loaves and two fish, bring it. It's enough. How do you guys start bringing what you have? But also, it's not just that. Notice this. It's share what you get. Share what you get from Jesus. I mean, notice the disciples, if they would have just taken it out and gone home, then 400 groups of 50 wouldn't have got fed. But what did they do? They came back with the basket and filled it up again. Could you imagine? Like, what, I don't even know what that looks like, right? They come back and there's another basket full. Another basket full. And, and they ate, 20,000 people ate till they were full. Like, imagine the sparkle in their eyes as they began to see that. So I want you to ask the question today, what has Jesus given you to share? See, there seems to be this reality, and I hit on it earlier, and I think we, it comes back to expectation, is that you and I, we, we tend to think that until we have everything we need, we can't step out and give what we have away or share what we've been given. So, so Jesus, you want me to go out and do what? Well, I don't know all the answers yet, and I don't know that I have that skill, and Jesus, I don't really know that I have the ability to even do it. And so we, we end up saying, well, someday, right? You guys know the old saying, well, someday when I have enough money, I'll have kids, right? Someday when I have enough retirement, I'll, I'll, I'll quit my job. Someday when, you know, I don't want to make a Broncos joke today because, you know, today might be a win. So, but anyways, someday. And Jesus says, don't wait for someday. Wait for today. Like, don't wait until you have everything to to give, give what you have, and share what you've been given. And the reality is, guys, you've been given the greatest of gifts. If you know Jesus, you've been forgiven of your sins, and you have that to share. The reality is, guys, that when you know Jesus, you've been forgiven of every single thing you've ever done, every bad thought you've ever had, every little lie you've ever told, and you've been forgiven of everything that you're ever going to do. And Jesus says, when you ask me to forgive you of your sins and believe in me as the Savior of the world, you're clean, white as snow, set on the path for life. And if you've said yes to Jesus, you have the greatest gift to share. Because you can sit across from a friend who says, I, 
God will never love me because of what I've done. And you can say, yes, he will, because he loved me. And you can sit across from a coworker who says, my life is such a mess, and I'm so addicted, and I'm, my marriage is falling apart. And you can say, yeah, I know I was there too. And guess what? Jesus loves you so much, he died for you on the cross. And when you say yes to him, you are forgiven of your sin. And you are freed, and you are forgiven, and you are rescued, and you are redeemed, and you are restored. And you can take all that expectation, glass half empty junk, and throw it to the side because you've been redeemed forever. What has Jesus given you that you can share? And what if our prayer this week forefront was, Jesus, help me to learn to give what I can and share what I get. How could Jesus change your life and the life of everybody around you? So here's Jeremy Brown. He's laying on the field. It's just everybody's laughing at him. He's on the ground. He's trying to crawl back to first base. And then the first baseman reaches down and he taps him on the shoulder. And you're like, is he making fun of him? No, he says, hey, Jeremy, get up. It's a home run. And Jeremy's like, what? And his first base coach is like, yeah, it's, the ball went 60 feet past the wall. And so he, he's confused. He gets up and everybody's looking at him and the crowd's cheering and he dusts himself off and he runs to, by first and the shortstop for the team's doing this. He runs the third and the third base coach and the third baseman are high-fiving and fist-pumping. Jeremy is running to home plate, just pumping his fist in the air. What started as a moment of expectation that it was going to be failure ended in the greatest moment of his life because it's a home run now. He's the hero. The beautiful picture here, guys, is that when we give it all to Jesus, Jesus hits the home run. The ball is 60 feet over the fence. You and I don't have to crawl back to first base with our head down. You and I can pump our fist in the air because it's Jesus that brings the victory. It's Jesus that has won the game. And we just are simply following. We're simply trusting every step of the way. So this week, how do we become people who are pumping our fists as we're riding third base, knowing that Jesus has already won? And all he's asking us to do is to be faithful and to bring what we have and to share what we get because we know that Jesus is enough. Let's be people this week who remind each other Jesus is enough. Let's say it together. Jesus is enough. Would you pray with me?